Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about all sorts of things. The cleansing of the temple, the number 666, Simon the Magician, the end of times, you name it. We're not going to be able to get to everything this episode. We're going to do a lot of stage setting, a lot of gospel reading, a lot of good stuff, and you'll get plenty of commentary along the way. But by the time you're done with both of these episodes, you will know three different meanings of the number 666. How the cleansing of the temple points to the end of times, what the fruit was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened to the golden calf of Exodus once it grew up, who the original false prophet and false virgin Mary may have been in the first century, why you don't want to be raptured, why, if you are levitating, you ought to wear a helmet, and of course, what Chuck E. Cheese tokens have to do with usury, simony, and the end of the world. So where to start today? Uh, we're going to begin with Matthew, his account of the cleansing of the temple. We're going to do a bunch of reading, get everything loaded into our noggins. And yes, then we'll stop in Leviticus, everybody's favorite book. You are sure to enjoy that too. Well, without any further ado, let's begin. This is Matthew. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So note the events which are recorded here. First, we have the triumphal entry of Christ into his holy city. Next, he cleanses the temple. And finally, he curses a fig tree. Now imagine for a minute the scene of Jesus driving out these money changers and robbers, driving out all these merchants and all of the livestock also. More than one early church father that I read point this out as a miracle. In the hustle and bustle and shouts and haggling and jockeying for first place in line, one man, in the midst of this chaos, had the strength and ferocity to drive out so many unwilling people. Just imagine what that must have looked like. The intensity, the strength, the zeal that came upon him to be able to, by himself, (laughs) drive all of these people out of the temple. Now, if they ever consult me, if I ever get a call from the Vatican, and they need some new rosary mysteries, I would suggest the zealous mysteries. The two temple cleansings. That's right. I said two, and we'll get back to that. How about the the condemnation of the Pharisees? Oh, uh, oh, what was it? Den of vipers, etc. That's a good one. Good zealous mystery. Um, I would add in the words of Christ, where he says, I am he in response to those who are going to take him captive and bring him to the, uh, to, the, um, to the crucifixion. Once he said that, it said that the soldiers and those that were there with him um, were knocked to the ground. So that's a good zealous mystery. And uh, what would be the last one? Well, I have two others that pop to mind, actually. One would be where it says Jesus was indignant. Um, and uh, that's when uh, the, the leper comes to him and says, would you make me clean? And the Greek for indignant means, that's how it's typically rendered, means to shudder or quiver. So he's like quivering with a, a type of anger. That's what the indignation means. It's a type of anger. It's this zeal. Of course, he's not angry at the leper. He's angry at the state of this, this fallen world. He's angry at the disease. So it says he's indignant. 
And he says, I am willing, be clean. Um, So that's a, that's a type of zealousness. That'd be a good one. Um, And another one is uh, when he says, let the children come unto me, it also uses that same word that he's indignant. He has that passion, that anger, that zeal. Um, It feels like there's something going on that's not right. And he moves to action. He says, let these children come unto me. So there you go. If they ever call me up and ask for more rosary mysteries, it's going to be the zealous mysteries. Um, But note that we have that word earlier, uh, that indignant. So although Jesus was indignant about the wrong that were going on, it says that the Pharisees were indignant about the praise that he was receiving. So we see these dueling spirits of zealousness. And of, and of course, we ought to model Christ's. Um, and speaking of model, modeling Christ here, oftentimes we get a picture of a very placid, calm, gentle Christ. Now, Jesus at every single time in his life on earth and forever after is loving. Why? Because he's God and God is love. He is always merciful. He is always just, but he's not always nice. Clearly, he wasn't nice here. And as Christians, we don't have to be nice either. We actually are due in the order of justice, according to Thomas Aquinas, to be um, to be generally uh, likable, affable to others, because they deserve to meet nice people in the world, people who are polite. We do owe that to our neighbors. But there are times when that's not what's due in the order of justice. Instead, it's the very reverse, that we ought to have an angry zeal to set things right, to bring God's kingdom come. All right, well, let's move on to the way that Mark lays out these same events, and Keep your ears open for a few similarities. This is how he begins. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat of this fruit again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who had sold and those who had bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, also rendered doves. If you're a biology biology nerd, you know that pigeons and doves are the same thing, Um, same family and everything. Anyways, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching and when evening had come they went out of the city again here he is entering the holy city at Jerusalem he's greeted with these cries of hosanna He also curses a fig tree, and then he cleanses the temple. And this is the Gospel of Mark. It is about as many words as a Katy Perry song, and yet it makes room for this extended explanation of these events. Why? Because they're important. And if you haven't guessed already, the fig tree is very likely to be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I have an entire episode just on the evidence for this. So keep scrolling back to earlier episodes and you will find it. Um, I'll give a few reasons here, though, but I won't spoil it. One, we know that the fig tree was present in the Garden of Eden since Adam and Eve used its leaves to make coverings. In fact, it's the only tree that's actually named there. That's the only one that we actually know of. And if you go back and listen to what I just read, it's it's also talked about with the uh, fig tree in leaf. So we have here, this tree that gets the curse by Jesus is a fig tree in leaf. The same description that we get in Genesis because they pulled the leaves off it to make their garments. Second reason, 
there is a crazy cool symbiotic relationship with a certain pollinator that mirrors um, the relation of mankind to the demonic. And you're going to have to listen to that episode to get exactly that. It's quite interesting. And the third one is, if you have fig trees, you know that snakes live in them. Snakes love fig trees. They commonly wind through the branches. Anybody who tends fig trees will know that. And I'm sure there's plenty of you listening who tend fig trees. Number four, I know, I don't want to spoil that episode. I'm not giving you four reasons. I'll just give you those three. But there you go. As promised, we have revealed which fruit was on that particular tree. Moving on to Luke. Luke also records this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive those out who sold, saying to them, As it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Again, the entrance to Jerusalem. Now, the fig tree incident is not recorded here. Instead, all the fig tree action gets addressed later in a parable. But once more, we have the cleansing of the temple. And this uh, this temple itself has enormous significance. So Jerusalem is called, and well, is called today, and has been called, even in, throughout the scripture, the, the center of the earth, the true pole of the earth. That's how it's viewed. And the center of that center is the temple. It's decorated with stars, with planets, constellations, birds, animals, plants, the works. It's meant to be a microcosm, a small cosm, if you will, a little cosmos, a representation of all of creation. This is the place that Jesus comes to cleanse. And I hope you see the end times links here. What we're supposed to read is that there's this model of the cleansing at the end of the world. So, recall we have the triumphal entry. Then we have this cleansing. So, let's read what, uh, what St. Paul writes in, to the Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet uh, call of God. And the dead in Christ will live, rise first. After that, we who, still who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be ever with the Lord. So what will happen in the end of times? Well, the dead will rise. We will, all together, alive in Christ, go out to meet Christ, usher him into the holy city, the city of God. Wait, what's that? You thought that this was the rapture? Oh no, dear listener, you do not want to be raptured. This here does not say we are taken away. Instead, we come out to meet Jesus. And as I've read from all of those gospels, that's what happened when Jesus came to Jerusalem. They come out, there's these shouts of praise, the um, announcement that the king has come, right? We see this mirrored. And then they bring him into the city and he begins his cleansing work. If you don't believe me that you're, um, that you're not meant to be raptured, well, we're going to read some of Matthew 24. We're going to pull out a variety of things, but I think it'll be pretty clear that the rapture is for the bad guys once we're done. All right, this is Matthew 24, and when Jesus is asked about the end of times. And he says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
All these are the beginnings of birth pains. So I'll add, oftentimes, especially in the Protestant world, really stress end time stuff, we're told, oh, there's wars and rumors of wars. Oh, there's the uh, earthquakes in different places. Listen, this always happens, right? We would have to see a massive increase in these. And even so, Scripture says, all these are the beginnings of the birth pains. And also, do not be alarmed. But moving on. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many of you will turn away from the faith and will be betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That would have been a good part to include in the previous episode about the Catholic gospel versus faith alone. This is important. One must stand firm to the end to be saved. Now, all of what we're reading here, what we'll later read in Revelation, I think episode two of this, all of these things relate to the uh, the people that Christ was speaking to. Also, people at the very end of time. But it's not just all the way in the past, all the way in the future. This is always for us as well, because we will all have the coming of Christ in our lives. We all have to stand firm to the end to be saved. But let's continue. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I might argue that we actually have fulfilled this this condition, that we have gone to the entire world and preached the gospel, or at least pretty darn close, certainly to every nation. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Well, let's stop there because the reader might not understand, or listener in the case may be. Let's talk about this abomination that causes desolation that's spoken of through Daniel. I like how the gospel author just is like, you guys get it, right? Right? Y'all read Daniel, of course. Y'all familiar. But maybe you are not. So let's read it. Um, There's a couple places where it pulls up, but I'll read one of them. He will confirm a covenant with many for one, quote, seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So that clarified stuff, right? Now we know what the abomination is that wait a minute, he didn't give us a definition. We actually have to look a little bit deeper. Um, if you are a one of the Protestant listeners, you're missing a few books in your Bible. I know. Um, and some of those are the Maccabees. And in there, you're going to learn about the uh, period of Hellenization, where the Greeks conquered, uh, conquered the Holy Land. And all sorts of terrible stuff happened. Actually, technically, I guess it was the Macedonians because it was Alexander the Great or his his generals. But in any case, called the period of Hellenization. So we know from that time what the abomination that brought desolation was. And that is they set up an idol to Zeus in the temple. And worse than that, on the altar, they sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal. So they offered this false worship, this idolatrous worship, and they offered it to Satan, offering this unclean animal, right? So that's basically what we're talking about here. The abomination that brings desolation is a, uh, is a blasphemous sacrificial act whereby we are, we are worshiping a false god. All right, so there we go. That's the abomination that brings desolation back to the text. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to their cloak. How dreadful it will be for those pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. And there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. 
For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Remember I said this gets a partial fulfillment at the time of uh, at the time of the hearers in that generation it also gets a final fulfillment later and in a sense we get an ongoing fulfillment um, we're going to get into these false prophets these false messiahs that appeared even in the first century to deceive the elect exciting stuff but let's continue so if any of you uh, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness do not go or here he is in the inner rooms do not believe it for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Famously, there is a debate between an atheist and a Christian apologist. I forget who they were. But the atheist says, um, how is it possible that the whole world is going to see Christ descending, which I think is mentioned later in this passage, and the because the world's round, right? So if if Christ is descending, say at Jerusalem to come down on the Mount of Olives, um, how is everybody going to see it? How are the Chinese going to look up and see Jesus? And I really like the response of the Christian apologist. He said, "Well, that's easy. I promise." that I will take a video recording of it and I will put it on the internet so everybody can watch it, watch it at once. <laughs> well, I think that is a creative, interesting uh, solution to that such that everybody can indeed see Christ come back. I have a slightly different theory. Now, we have a little hint from the passage that the way that he's going to come back is kind of like when lightning is uh, comes from the east and is visible even to the west. What I think is going to go on is something like the um, something of the story of Jericho. Why? Because we have this conquering of the city of man. We have um, the the holy people coming back uh, to to this land that was promised them, uh, that's been taken by sin, but they're being restored. They've come out of slavery. Um, kind of mirrors some end time stuff, and they go around it six times in silence. Then there's a loud cry, right? We got that, the crying of the Hosanna, the announcement of the angel, the blowing of the trumpet, right? We have the uh, trumpet blast of the angel, I think mentioned in Revelation. Then the walls come down, there's this victory, and then the city is taken. I think that's going to be mirrored at the end of the world. And this moving from east to west, this visible around the entire world, well, that makes sense because Jesus could just come down uh, by circling his, uh, his world, say, six times. And on the seventh, we get all of the, uh, the, the cries and shouts and all that good stuff. And evil is destroyed, Christ reigns. That's my pet theory. Um, but you don't have to adopt that one. Verse 29 Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the powers of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its figs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that life is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Did you hear that? The fig tree aside that just kind of jumps in randomly into this passage doesn't seem to fit. Well, if you recognize that what is talking about is a full fruiting uh, representing uh, the fullness of mankind. Maybe the fullness of evil has been finally brought about, thus the end of times and the need for judgment. The wheat and the tares have grown up. The good and evil have grown up and are ready for harvest. Um, recall the entrance to the Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple that represents uh, the temple that represents the universe. Um, in multiple gospels that we read, this is paired with the curse of the fig tree. And now Jesus is talking directly about the end of times. And what does he throw right in here? The fig tree. Coincidence? I think not. Um, now, you may be wondering, what does it mean that uh, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened? Well, there's a couple views on this. One is that the generation represents a covenant age. So this covenant age, this uh, kind of time of church history will not pass away. I think that's plausible. And there's a sense that that is correct. 
The other one is that the generation means exactly that, that this will happen in their lifetime. And indeed it did. We have the destruction of the temple. We have this great uh, persecution. We have all sorts of wild events in the first century. Um, so it does have a fulfillment in the um, ears of the hearers in that generation. It just has a further fulfillment later on at the end of time. And that's pretty much par for the course for all prophetic stuff. Typically you get the prophecy of the word, then you get some type of um, uh, literal fulfillment, and then that literal fulfillment becomes the um, type of the later greater fulfillment. Okay. But after that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given to marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Hmm. Remember that part. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill. One will be taken and the other left. So who was swept away by the flood? The righteous or the unrighteous? Well, it was the bad guy swept away by, by the flood, right? So at the end of the world, it says the, it will be like the uh, days of Noah. Um, and in the days of Noah, the bad people are taken away. And it details exactly what this is going to be like. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will not. Raptured, if you will. So the people who are raptured, um, they're the bad guys because the people at the time of Noah who were taken away by the flood or raptured by the flood, if you will, were the bad guys. So there you go. Don't be raptured. The raptured guys are bad. So if you talk to one of our, your Protestant friends and they start talking about the rapture, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I thought you loved Jesus. You want to be raptured? I, well, well, yeah, I want to meet Jesus in the air. Well, that's fine. We're, we're all on that one. But, but, but you want to be raptured? I don't know. It's a way to kind of troll them. But they do need to clarify this because when we talk about the taking up in this case, there's a taking up of the evil. And that's a very, very important uh, distinction. So what's this whole thing about the sun not even knowing the hour of the day? Sometimes people say, well, that means that uh, 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 the, the sun really isn't omniscient like God is. Oh, no, 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 no. He is um, God. The Son is just as much God as every every other part of the Trinity. Not actually a part, but all persons of the Trinity are all 100% God. So what is it trying to tell us that, that uh, the Son, that Jesus will not know, but only the Father? Is he somehow um, uh, stopping his omniscience here? Well, no, here's what I think it's actually saying. There's a lot of wedding Im imagery here, and uh, there's other passages which make it more explicit that we have a wedding. Um, the, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem is, is veiled as it is made to look like a bride. There's the marriage supper of the lamb, all that good stuff. So there's lots of wedding imagery. The uh, thief in the night part that comes in later as we finish out this section, that is a common uh, wedding trope that the groom arrives like a thief in the night to steal away his bride. Um, and basically, we have uh, we have a setup that's very traditional Jewish wedding. There's the uh, visitation of the groom that happened when Christ came to earth. And then he goes away to his, his father's land and he builds a house for his bride. And that's what we're told Jesus is doing. He's building the mansion, preparing a place for you. That's wedding imagery. And when the father of the groom declares that this is good enough, this is ready, go and get your bride, then that's when he comes back. So it's not that the uh, that Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. He does. What this is instead signaling is that he is our, our bridegroom and that he's preparing a place for us and that this is culminating in a giant cosmic marriage of, uh, of God to his people. All right, last part. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. 
So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, in most of our lives, unless we're in the end times, which I kind of doubt, um, but if provided we're not in that, we're going to have the coming of the Son of Man. He will come as judge to us at our death. And no, none of us know when that time will come. So all of these things are applicable to us right now. Even if you are not a first century listener, and even if you are not a last century listener. Now, the Gospel of John. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Hmm. Now, this passage comes after the wedding in Canaan, but the other Gospels recorded that the cleansing happened after the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Now, many liberal Bible scholars point to this as a contradiction, as an error in the Gospel. Apparently, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wasn't quite enough to, um, to preserve this particular order of events. Hmm. Yes, yeah, some Bible scholars believe that this is an error. But some Bible scholars are idiots. You see, here's the thing. We're often taught to think critically. That's not the only way of thinking. We can also think in a way that puts things together. That's what we've been trying to do, to take all of this information and to synthesize it into, into something, something more clear. Not to break a puzzle apart into all of its constituent pieces, but to put it together. To try to witness God through faith, then look down at our jigsaw puzzle and make what we have um, more resemble the maximum of truth, God himself. That's what we like to do. Now, there are times where it's important to break things into their constituent parts to study them better, but only when we want to come to a larger knowledge by being able to first clarify what we think about the smaller things. But in critical thinking, coming from the critical school, coming from Marxism itself, the enemy of Christianity in a great many ways. See my three-part episode. Um, in this view, we're called, in the words of Marx, to the relentless criticism of all that is. We're told to be just solvents, to take the good things of the world and break them apart. Now, I don't think that that's really wisdom. Critical thinking, if we're just meant to criticize, to break apart, to come to the Gospels, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us by God, presented to us without error by the church that Jesus Christ founded. When we're to come to this, we're not to criticize, to break apart. That is entirely wrong. We're not meant to come to it and divide, to be a divider. Hmm, name of Satan. Devil, divider, interesting. Anyways, we're not called to come and do that. We instead sit at the feet of Scripture and we listen. This is what critiques us. This is what separates, what breaks up us, what separates us from our sin, our ignorance from our wisdom. Scripture does this to us, not the other way around. We listen to the words of God and we believe them. And we seek to understand them more fully. We still have snakes in the garden who speak to us, who call us to pride, who say, is that what God really said? Were those really his words? They try to sow doubt, offer rival interpretations to justify their own envy, their own pride, to justify the, the, their own passions. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing. But if these liberal Bible scholars knew their, uh, knew their Bible from their, own, from their own rear end, they would know that the simple solution for this is what the early church fathers knew, what many of them talked about, what Augustine defended at length, more than one writing, is that there was more than one cleansing of the temple. Duh, obviously, one after the wedding in Canaan, it's presented by John, 
right? In what, John chapter 2. And then the other cleansing comes later on recorded by the Synoptic Gospels. That's the answer, obviously. They're in different times because they were at different times. There's just two being recorded, my goodness, people. Oh, okay, digression coming. Um, This type of attitude, which you get from these liberal scholars, and by the way, if anything, this is like the majority view, it seems, from so many, uh, that this is an error, this is uh, some type of problem with the scripture, so I'm really harping on this. This type of, uh, this type of, of view that we should come to the scriptures and we should be very cautious to affirm things. At times, this can make sense, right? Not with the Gospels, but in other avenues, these academics who do this are playing what's called a loser's game in game theory. Basically, there's games which you try to not lose, and that's how you win. And there's other games where you try to win, and that's how you win. Um, I don't know. Hide and go seek. That is a loser's game. The last person is the winner. So, so long as you don't go out, you win. A foot race is a winner's game. You have to out-compete everybody. The person who is first wins. And there are times where we need to play one way, times where we need to play the other. And typically in academic circles, you need to play a bit of a loser's game. You don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to affirm something's false. You're dealing with a very specific question, a very specific discipline. And as Aquinas tells us, pulling from Aristotle, a small mistake at the beginning can lead to huge mistakes later on. So it's important that academics do their work very well with an eye towards not messing up because we don't want those errors to metastasize. So that can be good. But it's the wrong approach when we come to scriptures to say, I want to be very cautious whenever affirming anything. I don't want to jump to this conclusion that what the Bible is saying is is true. I'd sooner just say that maybe this is a contradiction, maybe this is a problem. That's the wrong application. It's the wrong application of, of that type of skepticism. Instead, we should be skeptical in the reverse, skeptical that Scripture made the mistake. We should give it the benefit of the doubt because it's the book that judges us, not the other way around. (sighs) So this winners-losers game thing, I think, can be applied more broadly to the Christian life as a whole. We're told to, by Paul, to run the race as if to win it. We're told that the Christian life is a race that we're meant to try to win. We're playing a winner's game. It's not just about not sinning, right? That's scrupulosity. We all know those people who are so wrapped up in just not doing a sin. Hey, is this a sin? Is that a sin? Oh, no, I didn't do that. Just navel-gazing. That's not how you do the Christian life. That's playing it as a loser's game. Paul tells us play it as a winner's game. And in many areas of life, we ought to play it as more of a winner's game. But there's such thing as the barbell strategy. This is game theory and risk management and whatnot, if you're familiar with that kind of stuff. The barbell strategy says, do enough to make sure that you don't say, uh, go out of the game. Or maybe in life, you don't die or go bankrupt, something like that. And then spend the rest of your effort trying to trying to win, trying to out-compete. So give yourself this baseline. And then after that, go bananas. So in the Christian life, basically it looks like this. Don't commit mortal sin. That's, your, uh, that's one side of the barbell. And then the other side of it is um, fulfill the two greatest commandments to the absolute maximum. Go crazy with that. Try to love God and neighbor as much as you can. Don't navel gaze. No, turn your eyes all the way up to God, out to neighbor, and try to run the race as if to win it. And if you noticed, I've tried to do this podcast like that. I would rather have all of my podcast episodes be terrible and have one that's really fantastic than to produce a lot of really mediocre ones. I know full well, especially if you go back to the earlier ones, there's a lot of stinkers. There's whole sections of podcasts that I thought I should delete that. And I think, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to leave those in there. Always a good way to to pop my my bubble of pride is to think back to all the, the useless babbling that I've done here and, of course, elsewhere in life. I think that, yes, all right, long digression. We, uh... 
we should be playing a winner's game. That's what I seek to do. That's what you should seek to do. That's what Paul did. That's what Christ did. Christ didn't win our salvation by just uh, playing it safe, uh, not sinning, right? That's that's what a lot of Protestant uh, Christianity tells us, that we were saved by by Christ not messing up, not screwing up the law, right? And somehow that did it. That's false. No, no, no. Yes, it's true that he didn't uh, he didn't break the law. But what's more true is that it was his abundant act of love over and above that won our salvation. That's what happened. It wasn't his not screwing up that grants us salvation. It was his overabundant winning. It was Christus Victor. It was his winning. Alrighty, anyways. Okay, big digression over. I think we're getting to, yes, Leviticus is next. Let's talk about some Leviticus. I promise it'll be more interesting than you may think. Now, keep in mind that general pattern that we read with the uh, entrance of Jesus, the uh, the cleansing, all that good stuff. Let's see what we find. This is from Leviticus chapter, I don't remember. When the days of her purification are complete, this is about when a, a woman gives birth, whether for a son or for a daughter, she is to bring the pri- to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And the priest will present them before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be ceremonially cleansed from the flow of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, a one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest can make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Note a few things. The cleansing after a woman gives birth. This is when there's a, so order, we have the coming of, in our case, a son, but in this case, it's coming of this new person to the community. They accept this with great thanksgiving, offering this sacrifice. Um, We have the, the dove, which is mentioned in our gospels earlier, and of course here. Um... And then we have the cleansing, but you know, I won't give up too much away. We need, we have more to read here. So when this is picking up in the next chapter, but of course there were no chapters in the original. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when someone has a swelling or rash or bright spot on their skin, that could be an infectious skin disease. He must be brought to Aaron, the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest will examine the affection on the skin. And if the hair in the infection has turned white and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin. It is a skin disease. After the priest examines him, he must pronounce him unclean. Now Mark records, and he enters Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, right? So we have, I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this, but we have in our gospels, they all present the coming of Christ. And then they switch immediately to the cleansing at the temple. Here, in the law, we have the coming of a child, and then the woman, and often Jerusalem is presented as a woman, and we already talked about the bride typology earlier, um, presents at the temple. And then we have the cleansing stuff that comes afterwards. So we have Jesus who arrives and looks at everything. He's taking the role of the priest. Don't remember if I said this already, but there are very few things which can affect both a person and a building. Very few. The only one that I know of is called Surat. Those rendered uh, rendered, uh, skin disease or leprosy in different places. There's disagreement on how exactly to render that word. But Surat is a type of blight or illness that can affect the body of people and also buildings. So what I'm reading here is this type of disease. And later on, it will talk about how to cleanse a building and it's quite similar. All right. If, however, the spot on his skin is white and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair of it has not turned white, the priest shall isolate the infected person for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to re-examine him. And if he sees that the infection is unchanged and has not spread on the skin, the priest must isolate him for another seven days. The priest will examine him again on the seventh day. And if the sore has faded and has not spread on the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's a rash. The person must wash his clothes and be clean. Thus, if the rash spread further on his skin after he has shown himself to the priest for this cleansing, he must present himself 
to the priest. The priest will re-examine him. If the rash has spread on the skin, the priest must pronounce him clean. He has a skin disease. When anyone develops a skin disease, he must be brought to the priest. The priest will examine him. And if there is a white swelling on the skin that has turned the, the hair white, and there is a raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic disease, and the priest must pronounce him unclean. He need not isolate him, for he is unclean. But if the skin disease breaks over all of his skin, so that it covers all the skin of the infected person from head to foot, as far as the priest can see, the priest shall examine him, and if the disease has covered his whole body, he is to pronounce the infected person clean. Since it has all turned white, he is clean. You didn't see that one coming, did you? You thought, I thought, that if, this, that if the skin disease breaks over all of his skin, so it covers the skin of the infected person from head to foot, as far as the priest can see, the priest shall examine him, covering, and the disease has covered his entire body, he should be unclean, right? Like really unclean. Well, let's talk about this part. First, I want to point out that there are three examinations. The final is the definitive one. Jesus, who came to fulfill the whole law, this part included, comes to the temple, once recorded in John, to cleanse. But the problem reappears. What is seen is the raw flesh, if you will, base human nature, unregenerated by God's grace, the flesh that wars against the spirit, as Paul might put it. Finally, at the end of the world, Jesus came back for a final judgment of clean and unclean, sheep and goats, wheat and tares. Some will be cast out of the holy city permanently, and others will be permanent members of the city of God, the New Jerusalem, as Revelation calls it. So, how many examinations, cleansings do we have here? Three. One, and then another very much like it. And then a final one that sorts you either into the city, right, the holy city, the place of covenant communion with God, or outside of the city. So, how many cleansings of the temple do we have where he cleansed both building and person, where he arrives, and as Mark puts it, looks around at everything? How many of these do we have? One in John, another recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, and the last one at the end of the world. So, liberal Bible scholars, if you read Leviticus, you would know that this is a fulfillment of the law. So, what do we do with that very last bit, right? That, that section that I reread, the part about the disease which covers the entire person. It's quite strange that that person's pronounced clean. Seems like it should be the opposite. Here, I think what's being, uh, what's being prefigured is a full fruiting of the fig tree, from Matthew 24, when the disease reaches its zenith. Yet the fig is cursed, it's destroyed. Jesus took on our flesh, and by his flesh he heals us. By his stripes we are healed. In his blood we are washed white, white as snow. And what color are these clean people from Leviticus? Well, they're white, as far as the priest can see. I mean, I think it's quite a surprise, but then again, maybe it shouldn't be so much of a surprise when the disease covers us from head to foot and yet we emerge clean. After all, Paul writes, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we were united with him in death, like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we will no longer be slaves to sin, because anybody who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. We know that the wages of sin is death. So, it's in, the bap it's in baptism that, in a sense, 
death or sin fully flowers. It, it comes to, to its final head, just like sin will come to its final head at the end of the world. Just like that fig tree, the knowledge of, the, uh, of, of good and evil, that finally comes to, uh, comes to full fruiting and then it's cursed, um, it's also cursed by Jesus. So in baptism, the power of sin overcomes our entire body and we die. But it's through this death when paired with Christ's death that we're washed clean, that we're made alive again, that we're accepted back into the covenant. So just like those those lepers, those people who are unclean, they find that 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 the disease has covered them from head to toe. And yet they come out of this after the meeting with their priest as clean, white as snow, accepted back into the covenant. That's what happens to us through baptism. We have many, many, many more things to hit, but we're running up almost to an hour. Um, Let's see. This is basically our scaffolding, the order of events and a little bit of the explanation of events that we've gone so far. So we have to deal with the Antichrist next, the beast, the number 666. And well, we also need to talk about those doves that have been referenced a number of times, both in Leviticus and in the gospel passages. Why are those so important? Well, the early church fathers tell us that when they were selling doves in the temple, what that pictures is the selling of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit often represented by a dove. And this becomes extraordinarily significant because there was one person who sought to buy the Holy Spirit. His name was Simon the Magician. He's the most important bad guy in the first century maybe even worse than Nero. He's the progenitor of all sorts of heresies, blasphemies, and evil. He's a false Peter, a false prophet, a false Christ. He even tries to have a false resurrection. So that is what's coming up next. I hope you enjoyed this so far, and you listen in for the next episode.